Um, the reading I've chosen this morning uh, is a poem written by Edwina Gately from her book, Psalms of a Laywoman. Um, I met Edwina at a Women in Religion conference in Richmond uh, in the early 1990s. That was almost 35 years ago, hard to believe that. She spoke about her own spiritual journey, which started within the tradition of Catholic social justice and grew to an international ministry despite the many roadblocks the Catholic Church put in her way. The Anointing There were no crowds at my ordination. The church was cold and bare. There was no bishop to bless and consecrate. No organ music filled the air. No solemn profession went before me, procession went before me, nor cross, nor incense smell. There were no songs, nor incantation, and no pealing triumphant bell. But I heard the children laughing in the stench of the city slums, and I heard the people sobbing at the roaring of the guns, and the stones cried out before me, as the sirens wailed and roared, and the blood of women and children in the arid earth was poured. There were no crowds at my ordination. The church was cold and bare. But the cries of the people gathered, and the songs of birds filled the air. The wind blew cold before me. The mountains rose and split. The earth, it shuddered and trembled, and a flame eternal was lit. There were no crowds at my ordination. The church was cold and bare, but the spirit breathed, oh, so gently, in the free and open air. She slipped through the walls and the barriers, and from the stones and the earth she proclaimed, Oh, see, my blind, blind people, see woman whom I have ordained. So I am so pleased to be given the opportunity to do a sermon this summer to focus on our seven principles, which, um, by the way, can always be found on the back of your order of service. If you ever need a cheat sheet, I refer to them often. They're impossible to all memorize, but they're there for your own edification. Um, as you use, we share a living tradition of wisdom, spirituality, drawn from many sources. I've chosen to speak about the fourth principle today, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, because it is what drew me to Unitarian Universalism, in fact, this church in 1994. In her essay, The Seven Principles in Word and Worship, Reverend Paige Getty of the UU Congregation in Columbia, Maryland, eloquently captured the fourth principle, and here's an excerpt. As responsible religious seekers, we recognize that we are privileged to be free, to continually search for truth and meaning, to exist beyond bonds of dogma and oppression, and to wrestle freely with truth and meaning as they evolve. This privilege calls us not to be isolated and self-centered, 
believing that our single perspective trumps all others, but rather to be humble, to be open to the great mysteries of truth and meaning life offers. As a faith tradition, Unitarian Universalism makes sacred the right and responsibility to engage this free and responsible quest as an act of religious devotion. Institutionally, we have left open the questions of what truth and meaning are, acknowledging that mindful people will, in every age, discover new insights. So the first time I heard of uh, the UU faith was in the early 1990s when I started to search for something that would be a better fit for me and when I realized I could no longer reconcile the conflicts I had with the Catholic Church over abortion, um, the limited role for women in the church, the patriarchy, I could go on. Um, but I knew the moment that I entered the gymnasium at the Percival Community Center where the UUCL church was holding services at the time that these were my people and this is my faith. So I guess I was a UU my whole life, but I just didn't know it. Coincidentally, years later when I went back to my hometown of Peterborough, New Hampshire, I discovered that there was a UU church right in the center of town the whole time I was growing up that had been there since the 1800s. So um, no wonder this church feels like home to me. I just didn't know it. So today I thought I'd take the opportunity to affirm the fourth principle by exploring the feminine divine. Some experts believe megalithic societies, that's 4,000 BC, give or take, um, were matrilineal, with women placed at the apex of civilization, not as rulers, but as birth givers. Women were the original seed gatherers. They developed an intimate expertise in agriculture using instinct and common sense to select the best seeds for the next year's crops, unwittingly instituting what we now call artificial selection. The mother goddess took a variety of different forms. Sometimes she was a snake or a vulture or the moon. Each symbol represented a cycle of death, birth, and regeneration. The snake hibernates, then wakes up and sheds her skin. The vulture recycles dead flesh by eating it, and the moon dies and is reborn every 28 days, mirroring the feminine menstrual cycle. Excellence in craft work, technical skills, and exquisite art are some of the legacies along with the spirit of natural equality. Europe's mother goddess culture grew to its climax on the Mediterranean island of Crete in the second millennium BC. It survived here the longest. The discovery of this ancient island civilization was chiefly the work of Sir Arthur Evans, an eccentric but meticulous Victorian archaeologist. Evans discovered that the people of ancient Crete followed the megalithic tradition. Women and men had equal rights. Women did not dominate society, but they did oversee it. However, this would not continue. During the second millennium BC, the last of these early civilizations fell. New power in the form of military might was sweeping across Europe, the Middle East and Asia. Warriors had worked out how to prey off the profits of others, ushering in an age when human elitism, ruthlessness, and terror had their true beginnings. But today, goddesses and gods are still valued as equal deities in polytheistic religions. In most religions which accept polytheism, the different gods and goddesses are representations of forces 
of nature and ancestral principles. Goddesses most often have feminine characteristics. However, in some cases, goddesses may embody neutral forms, personifying both male and female characteristics, or they may even exhibit traits that are traditionally associated with the male gender. Goddesses have been especially linked to virtues such as beauty, love, motherhood, and fertility, but because of their flexibility in gender portrayal, they have also been associated with ideas such as war, creation, and death. In some faiths, a sacred female figure holds a central place in religious prayer and worship. For example, Shaktism, the worship of the female force that animates the world, is one of three major sects of Hinduism. In, of Hinduism. in Tibetan Buddhism, the highest advancement any person can achieve is to become like the great female Buddhas, for example, Tara, the goddess of compassion for whom the chant was performed by Mel and Carol. These goddesses are depicted as supreme protectors, fearless, and filled with compassion for all beings. At least since first wave feminism in the United States, there has been interest in analyzing religion to see if and how doctrines and practices treat women unfairly, as in Elizabeth Cady Stanton's The Woman's Bible. Again, in second wave feminism in the US, as well as in many European and other countries, Religion became the focus of some feminist analysis in Judaism, Christianity, and other religions, and some women turned to ancient goddess religions as an alternative. Judaism does not recognize a gender for God. This is a practice I share. But growing up and living in a, in a society with so much male-centered God worship, it is inspiring to celebrate the goddess and feminine divine to see a side of spirituality that speaks to me as a woman and to everyone. So let's take a look at a few more interesting goddesses around the world. So here we have Isis, a goddess from the polytheistic pantheon of Egypt. She was first worshipped in ancient Egypt, Egyptian religion, and later her worship spread throughout the Roman Empire and greater Greco-Roman world. Isis is still widely worshipped, by many pagans today in diverse religion, religious contexts. Isis was worshipped as the ideal mother and wife, as well as the patroness of nature and magic. She was the friend of slaves, sinners, artisans, and the downtrodden. Isis married her brother, not an uncommon practice back then, Osiris, and she conceived Horus with him. Isis was instrumental in the resurrection of Osiris, when he was murdered. There are a lot of stories that you'll see repeated throughout religion as I read some of these. Using her magical skills, she restored his body to life after having gathered the body parts that had been strewn about the earth. The myth became very important during the Greco-Roman period. It was believed that the Nile River flooded every year because of the tears of sorrow which Isis wept for Osiris. Osiris' death and rebirth was relived every year through rituals. The worship of Isis eventually spread throughout the Greco-Roman world, continuing until the suppression of paganism in the Christian era. The popular motif of Isis suckling her son Horus, however, lived on in a Christianized context 
as the popular image of Mary suckling her infant son Jesus from the 5th century onward. The great Hindu Durga, sorry, I have to remember to flip those slides. Um, Durga is the great Hindu mother goddess. Um, she's really nine goddesses in one. Um, Durga's nine manifestations embody qualities from courage to piety to blissful joy, and they're celebrated in India during a huge nine-day festival called Navarati. Now, Hin Hindu, Hinduism and India is like the jackpot for goddesses. So I could have done, you know, I mean, there are hundreds and so many. So I could have done like a whole sermon on just um, a couple of those. But anyway, um, so Navarati is um, nine, literally means nine nights. And it's one of the greatest Hindu festivals. It symbolizes the triumph of good over evil. Navarati takes place at the beginning of October around harvest time. This is a theme you'll see with a lot of goddesses, the harvest. And, uh, Navarati is a festival in which God is adored as mother. Hinduism is the only religion in the world which has emphasized to such an extent the motherhood of God. To celebrate a good harvest and to win the favor of the nine planets, women also plant nine different kinds of food grain seeds in small containers during these nine days and then offer the young saplings up to the goddess. During Navarati, some devotees of Durga observe a fast and prayers are offered for the protection of health and property, a period of introspection and purification. Navarati is traditionally an auspicious time for starting new adventures, new ventures. Navarati is celebrated by communities getting together for dances and nightly feasts. In India, the most colorful and elaborate celebrations take part in Bengal where huge idols of the goddess are worshipped. Yamaya. I have to say this is probably one of my favorite ones, Yamaya. A queenly and beautiful ocean goddess, Yamaya is mother of all waters on the, in the Yoruba religion of Africa, which has spread to Cuba, Haiti, and parts of South America. Once a year, tens of thousands of people float flowers and other gifts for Yamaya, out into the ocean from the shore of Salvador, Brazil. Yamaya is also called on in women's drumming circles to bring compassion, fertility, nurturing, and healing. Yamaya was brought to the West by the enslaved Africans of what is now Nigeria during the African diaspora from the 1500s to the 1800s. She is now worshiped in many cultures beside her original Africa. In parts of Brazil, she is the sea mother who brings fish to the fishermen, and she protects boats traveling on the sea and grants safe passage. She is the patron of women, in particular, pregnant women. When slaves were transported across the ocean, it was said to be Yamaya who protected them on their journey and kept them safe. She is kind and giving. She takes a long time to anger, but when she does, watch out. You have a hurricane on your hands. She is said to be the mother of whose children number as the fish in the sea. And that is why she is presented as a two-tailed mermaid. Yamaya is said to bring forth and protect life through all highs and lows, even during the worst atrocities that can be imagined and suffered. She reminds women to take time out for themselves, to nurture their own needs, and to respect their deserved position in life. 
This is a um, statue, and I believe it's a Norse statue, of another two-tailed um, mermaid. And I think they both sort of look familiar, don't they? So although Starbucks says that, they, that this image came from a Norse statue, which I think is probably the previous one, some black history bloggers and um, buffs claim Yemaya on the Starbucks cup. I think she looks a lot more like, like the Starbucks cup than the uh, Norse one. <laughs> All right. So Brigitte. I'm glad uh, Graham is Graham. Graham's not here because he would catch me on my accent with this um, wonderful Celtic um, saint. Anyway, Brigitte or Brigitte is the Celtic saint and goddess of poetry. And I'm, I adore poetry. So uh, this is right up my alley too. healing and smithcraft as well. She's been worshipped by the Celtic people as a saint for over 1500 years and as a goddess long before the Roman invasion of Britain and the birth of Christ. Her cult was so powerful that the Celtic Christian Church had to adopt her as a saint, and the Roman Catholic Church followed suit because her people would not abandon her. Along with St. Patrick, she is the patron saint of Ireland. Brigitte is considered the nearest thing Britain has to a great mother of the Celts. St. Brigitte shares many of the goddess's attributes, and her feast day was originally a pagan festival marking the beginning of spring. Again, planting... All kind of same theme. The name Britain is actually a derivation of Brigitte's name. Britain was named for an ancient Celtic tribe, the Brigants, who worshipped Brigitte and were the largest Celtic tribe to occupy the British Isles in Roman times. Ireland is dotted with springs that are sacred to her. Since 1993, the Brigadine sisters have kept an internal flame burning in St. Brigitte's honor in Kildare, the same place it used to burn for the goddesses in ancient times. Every year during the first stirrings of spring on February 2nd, people gather there to celebrate St. Brigitte's Day. Oh, there's another wonderful statue, and that's in the area where they keep the flame burning. So next we have Sekhemet an ancient Egyptian lioness goddess of war, healing, and menstruation. Sekhemet is actively worshipped today among neo-pagans in Europe and the USA. A temple to her has been actually built in Nevada. Sekhemet's breath was said to have formed the desert, and she embodies a raw fierceness, a kind of primeval force of survival, growth, and self-realization. Sekhemet is one of the oldest known Egyptian deities. Her name is derived from the Egyptian word Sekhem, which means power or might, and is often translated as the powerful one or she who is powerful. She is depicted as a lion-headed woman, sometimes with the addition of a sun disk on her head. You can see that on actually both of those. She was also known as the Lady of Pestilence and the Red Lady, indicating her alignment with the desert. And it was thought that she could spend, send plagues against those who angered her. Pachamama. Pachamama is revered by the indigenous people of the Andes. In Inca mythology, she is a fertility goddess who presides over planting and harvesting embodies the mountains, and causes earthquakes. 
Pachamama has a special worship day when people bury food, throw candies, and burn incense. In some cases, celebrants assist traditional priests in performing ancient rites to bring good luck or the goodwill of the goddess. The festival coincides with Shrove Tuesday, also celebrated as Carnival or Mardi Gras. Rituals to honor Pachamama take place all year, but are especially abundant in August, right before the sewing season. Not sewing. Sewing. <laughs> because August is the coldest month of the winter in the southern Andes, people feel more vulnerable to illness. Andeans believe that they must be on very good terms with nature to keep themselves and their crops and livestock healthy and protected. In order to do this, families perform cleansing rituals by burning plants, wood, and other items in order to scare evil spirits who are thought to be more abundant at this time. On the night before August 1st, families prepare to honor Pachamama by cooking all night. Before any of the guests are allowed to eat, the host must first give a plate of food to Pachamama. Food that was left aside is poured onto the ground and a prayer to Pachamama is recited. This is my favorite part. A main attraction of the Pachamama Festival is the Sunday Parade. The organizational committee of the festival searches for the oldest woman in the community and elects her the Pachamama Queen of the Year. Indigenous women, in particular senior women, are seen as incarnations of tradition and as living symbols of wisdom, life, fertility, and reproduction. The Pachamama queen who is elected is escorted by the gachos who circle the plaza on their horses and salute her during the Sunday parade. The Sunday parade is considered to be the climax of the festival. Ishtar or Inanna. Inanna was the main goddess of Babylonia. She was the goddess of love, war, fertility, sexuality. See the pattern? <laughs> Inanna was the daughter of Anu. She was particularly worshipped in the upper Mesopotamian kingdom of Assyria, which is now modern northern Iraq, northeast Syria, and southeast Turkey. Besides the lions on her gate, her symbol is an eight-pointed star. In the Babylonian pantheon, she was the divine personification of the planet Venus. Inanna had many lovers, and the fickle goddess treated her passing lovers cruelly, apparently. The queen of heaven and earth in ancient Sumer, Inanna, is best known for the gripping story of how she descended to the underworld. Some poets feel a special connection with Inanna, since poems in her honor by the priestess and Hedwana are the first known poems ever to have been signed by their author. Changing Woman. Changing Woman is the most respected goddess of the Navajo people. All Navajo ceremonies must include at least one song dedicated to Changing Woman. She is related to goddesses found in many other Native American traditions, such as Pawnee Moon Woman and Apache White Painted Woman. According to legend, Changing Woman changes continuously but never dies. When she begins to age, she walks toward the rising sun until she meets her younger self walking toward her. She grows into an older woman in the winter, but by spring she becomes a young woman again. In this way, she represents the power of life, fertility, and changing seasons. 
Ceremonies dedicated to changing women are performed to celebrate childbirth, coming of age for girls, and weddings, and to bless new homes. And our last goddess is Gaia. The ancient, and a lot of us have heard of Gaia, the ancient Greek earth mother who birthed the world and humanity out of chaos. She is the personification of the earth and one of the Greek primordial deities. Today, the name Gaia is known mainly through Dr. James Lovelock's influential Gaia theory, which proposes that the earth and all its organisms are interconnected in a complex living system. Many neo-pagans worship Gaia. Beliefs regarding her vary ranging from the belief that she is the earth to the belief that she is the spiritual embodiment of the earth and to the belief that she is the goddess of the earth. So I'm going to um, close with an excerpt from Sue Monk Kidd's book, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. I don't know if any of you have read that. It's an excellent book. The symbol of goddess gives us permission. She teaches us to embrace the holiness of every natural, ordinary, sensual, dying moment. Patriarchy may try to negate body and flee earth with its constant heartbeat of death, but goddess forces us back to embrace them, to take our human life in our arms and clasp it for the divine life it is, the nice, sanitary, harmonious moment, as well as the painful, dark, splintered ones. If such a consciousness truly is set loose in the world, nothing will be the same. It will free us to be in a sacred body, on a sacred planet, in sacred community with all of it. It will infect the universe with holiness. We will discover the divine deep within the earth and the cells of our bodies, and we will love her there with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds. Please rise as you are able and join in singing hymn number 318, We Would Be One. <laughs>